0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hella Interesting People. My name is Mike Ruby. And my name is Jacob Rubin. And we have a very interesting guest with us today named Dan West. Uh, we talked about a couple facets of his life, his time in the Army, um, his time as a stand-up comedian, and and kind of what led up to uh, both of those things. But yeah, I did, And everything
1: that kind of falls in between.
0: Right. I, I wanted to go back to... The previous episode we did, we interviewed Robert Odie Brown, who is a professional wrestling referee, and he at one point stated there, there's pretty much there's just one type of wrestling, one genre that he will not participate in, and that is mm-hmm. deathmatch wrestling, and I didn't know what that was. Uh, but I looked that shit up, and I ended up watching two Vice documentaries on it, and I, I don't know how I feel about myself or like what that says about like the headspace I'm in, but I could not stop watching that shit.
1: It is just, it's truly, I haven't, I mean, I, I, speaking as a wrestling fan, speaking as someone who watched AEW Full Gear over the weekend, and it was an incredible show. Um, I, I I think the deathmatch stuff, it's so, like, you watch it, I watch deathmatch wrestling for the same reason I always would watch when breakdancers would be out on the New York subway. Because, like, if somebody gets hurt, I'm going to talk about this for the rest of my life. Like, Deathmatch, it's such, like, pe- like when you see someone get hit with a light tube, nobody doesn't want to see that. Nobody's going to be like, no thanks. You you want to see what happens. I mean, it's sort of like,
0: I think it speaks to the, the gladiatorial roots that, that oh, we, as humans, yeah. you know, <laughs> are you not entertained? Like, it's so, like, what's one guy wrapped himself in barbed wire and then body slammed his opponent, thereby yeah. injuring both of them? And there's yeah. fucking broken glass and, and, uh, and thumbtacks and fire and, like,
1: explosions sometimes, yeah. It's just, it's so fucking gnarly, and I, I couldn't yeah. stop watching it. Because, like, I mean, the thing that people, what's the thing that people always say about wrestling? Oh, it's fake. Oh, it's scripted. Oh, nobody really gets hurt. You can't do deathmatch wrestling and not get very badly hurt. Like, you're yeah. going to be, like, I mean, there's ways to do it that sort of, like, mitigate the injury. But the point is for there to be blood coming out of you. <laughs> and when you see, when you go to a show knowing that that's what's going to happen, you can't, you can't say, oh, they're not really, like, you, you can't not have respect for it. Yeah. 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 That being said, it is incredibly polarizing. And if you heard all this and, and no part of you sounded curious about it, then don't check it out because uh, everything is, everything is on the tin. Everything we're saying about it is right on the label. It's a fucking death match. Yeah. It's, it's fucked up. Yeah. I
0: think with that kind of stuff, I just have to remain aware of my own headspace and pay attention to sure. like am i am i seeking this out more than i should because it's not like i want to participate in it or necessarily see it live but maybe i want to see it live maybe maybe i'll go to that a big deathmatch wrestling annual event in delaware and just like just hang out with all the, these fucking gnarly people who you know cut each other with barbed wire and shit
1: yeah and, and the thing is, as so wrestling, because wrestling is such a specific art form, it's, it's, I mean, wrestling is from beginning to end, an, a certain number of people in a physical competition where a winner is determined. Um, so th- there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room in terms of the story and things you could do, because everyone's seen all the moves. Everyone's seen a flying dropkick. Everyone's seen a tope suicida over the top rope. It's all these things. So you have to innovate and to see guys who are like, all right, I'm going to do this and I'm going to use. 1950s coca-cola glass bottles or i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna i'm gonna wear a bathrobe but it'll turn out that the rope on the bathrobe is a live snake you know you have to like come up with yeah and seeing the the, like because every generation has to improve on the one previous so deathmatch wrestling as with all professional wrestling as with all art is a constantly evolving art form and to be on the precipice of that to see it live and to see how people are trying to experiment and break up the form for something like that, what's a new way that I can make myself or somebody else bleed is just endlessly like it's something that I mean, I feel like it's exactly like you might not go watch a show. You might not go actually see deathmatch wrestling live, but it's too fascinating to not want. Like We should try to get a, a deathmatch wrestler on the show straight up, like somebody who explicitly goes in that direction. Uh, hey, if you can find someone that matches that description, I'll, I'll poke around honestly i will look and see like who's down to like get real philosophical about like so how much so you know exactly how much blood you could lose before you pass out like you know the number yeah 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 i'd I'd be down
0: to do another wrestling related episode but yeah moving towards uh
1: this episode yeah we talk about it a bit on the show Our, our guest today is dan west um, he I met him when I was doing stand-up comedy in the San Francisco Bay Area. I think we first met let's see, I started doing stand-up in like 2010. I think I started oh no, I got I started hanging out with him like within my first year or so of doing comedy. Um yeah, and and he was somewhat I mean, he'd been doing stand up for a while, but he was somewhat freshly out of the military. We had a number of mutual friends and we ended up becoming like pretty close. We were hanging out like most like basically every week, sometimes more. We we produced a few shows together. Um, the first, the way I first got in touch with him uh, was he booked me to do, um, he did the, these shows called PTSD comedy, where they were benefit shows where the money went to the Wounded Warrior Project, which is a, uh, um, provides a medical assistance, mental health stuff for veterans. I remember those shows. Um, I think I was at at least one of them. Yeah, he he did them at the punchline and sometimes, I, I mean, for a while, all of his shows were under the Wounded Warrior banner. Like the, the biggest show that that me and him ever put on was I Hosted. And he got Dat Fan, who was the very first winner of Last Comic Standing. They'd oh, yeah, yeah, them. I saw that show. That was the one, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was awesome. Uh, working with that Fan was, because was, he's, I mean, he's such a huge, I mean, he was such a huge deal for such a long time. Um, so, yeah, uh, and Dan's, I mean, now he lives in the Midwest. He moved out of uh, California in 2014. And he's been back, he's been in the Midwest since then. But, um, yeah, we stayed in touch a bit. Uh, yeah, he's a really, he's a really interesting dude. Um, And his comedy is, like we talk about it in the show, but his comedy, I mean, he talks a lot about being in the military, but also, I mean, he hasn't been in the military for over a decade now. So what his life is like now. And um, yeah, and it's really cool to see how he's uh, grown and developed as an artist. So let's get into it. Here's our talk with Dan
0: West. I wanted to tell you I uh, I just listened to your album. Uh not too friendly but prompt and polite. It's great. I just listened <laughs> to it on Spotify a couple hours ago.
2: Awesome. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was it was fun and the title Yeah, it was a Yelp review about me when I was a server and it was very accurate to who I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So you uh
0: I'm so I met you when you were living in the San Francisco Bay Area, but you've since moved to Indiana. Um, yes. Why is that? Is that where you're originally from?
2: <laughs> yeah, moving to Indiana by choice is a rare thing. Yeah, I mean you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> I I left California in late February, like I think it was February 27th of 2014, mm-hmm. uh, and I was just I was in a relationship that was real, real bad. Um, Like neither one of us were good for each other. And we kept breaking up and then getting back together because uh, I really, really loved her son and she loved having a father figure for her son. Um, And I knew the only way that I was ever gonna successfully extricate myself from this relationship was to just not be there. And I uh, I had a, a trip planned. I'm from Champaign, Illinois. Oh, okay. And I had a trip planned to do a show. And when it came time to buy the plane ticket, I realized I could just, oh, fuck, I could just buy that plane ticket one way. Uh, and I found a job in an apartment on Craigslist over the course of a couple of weeks. And just I, I moved. Yeah, It was very... Like over the course of five weeks, decided to move back home and then got offered a job here in Indiana a couple months after that. And I took that job. And so I moved. I'm a little north of Indianapolis in a little town I'd never heard of until I got this job offer. You live in Kokomo, right? Yes. I mean, I had heard the word Kokomo because of the Beach Boys,
1: but (laughs) the Beach Beach Boys made it up. I figured that was the reason. I figured you were like such a Beach Boys head. Uh, you know me, that that's right. classic Dan, big Beach Boys right. guy. Indian House run
2: <laughs> is
0: the Crossroads of America. And I yeah, think because that's because
2: you leave Yeah, I mean, that you and you have to go.
0: you have to drive <laughs> through it to get to anywhere cool. So it's literally it's just the state that you drive through as quickly as you can so you can get to Chicago or some cool shit.
2: It, I mean yeah that's yeah I I, ha, I stayed when I did because the way I justified it was it was just close to better places yeah like cost of living is super low where I'm at and I am two and a half three hours from Chicago I am three hours from Grand Rapids three hours from Dayton four hours from Detroit like I can get places that I actually want to go easily from living here.
0: (laughs) Right. And you can like do, you know, I saw you had a tour schedule up. You were playing in a few different States around.
2: Yeah. I, I, I I did, did a lot. Um, I I was on the road fairly extensively and then COVID hit and I kind of dove back in, but taking, taking a little break from stand up right now, this past weekend was my last weekend of booked shows and I'm going to, going to relax, finish school, and kind of go from there. And uh, what are you
0: in school for?
2: Public relations. You know, the, okay. the kind of thing where you really get to look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> I, I, I feel like you're saying that facetiously, but I, I don't know enough about it to make that kind of judgment.
2: So I, PR is a very sort of all-encompassing job every business uses some form of pr but when most people think of someone doing public relations they think of like
1: a press correspondent.
2: yes they think of that or they think of like the guy who shows up to give a check to a malpractice victim and a non-disclosure agreement like that's When people think of PR, they think of just terrible, terrible people. But there's a lot of, like, every business uses PR and marketing and social media management in some way or another. So it's not nearly as garbage a profession as a lot of places, like, as I don't want to say the media, because that's gross, but like, (laughs) as, like, as pop culture would have you believe PR professionals are just garbage people. And it's not all that there is also that. Oh, but it's okay. not all that. Oh, so it's the same as stand-up comedy? Yes, that's the <laughs> one.
0: <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, in regards to talking about your military experience in your comedy, can you speak to the juxtaposition between audiences in the Bay Area and audiences in the
2: Midwest? <laughs> I remember I did a show at Kipps in Berkeley and... I used to open my set by saying I joined the army when I was 19, which means if you don't laugh at my jokes, you hate freedom. Uh, yeah. Right. And at Kips, I got through the first half. I joined the army at 19 and I hear just a girl audibly from the back of the room say, Oh no.
3: <laughs>
2: like mm. it was going to turn into a recruitment rally.
0: Yeah. Uh by contrast, not, re- not really realizing it was a joke.
2: I mean, yeah, like it's it's a setup for there to be more comedy. You trusted the last three comics, maybe trust that I'm also going to tell jokes. <laughs> but by contrast, I uh, the third show of the weekend this past weekend it started at 10 p.m. and I I was exhausted and a little drunk, so I dove into the old material that I could pull on muscle memory because I was very tired. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: so about 20 minutes in, I said, you know, I joined the army when I was 19 and there was an applause break uh, because it's Indiana and they knee jerk support the troops trademark. Uh, (laughs) So that's, that's the biggest difference. Like it's, I don't like Uh, You guys have probably just ad nauseum heard about, like, woke culture, cancel culture, and snowflakes getting mad about jokes. And, like, obviously that is at its core bullshit. But there is a thesis statement at the beginning of it that is not entirely bullshit. Where there is a section of the population that hears a few different words and decides to get mad and each political side has those words that they'll get mad about because I've got a bit that I used to do about troops not automatically being heroes and then Bojack did it and Stanhope did it way better than I could ever hope to so I stopped doing that bit
1: Um, oh yeah I I remember that it yeah, wasn't it's one of the first episodes of Jack. Yeah, uh,
2: it's I think it's like season two is with uh, the Patton Oswalt penguin.
1: Um, uh, Or not penguin. No, he's a seal. That's like the third episode. Seal, of the yes, show. yes. I'm 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 almost done with season four. I'm going to rewatch right now. I forgot how great the show is. I rewatched <laughs> oh, yeah. that
0: shit, too. It's excellent. Yeah,
2: I actually never finished it because uh, my depression got too acute. And I was like, watching this will not help uh that's accurate beautiful beautiful art but when you're already in a depression spiral like i remember eight years ago i was thinking about quitting stand-up and my dad gave me steve martin's book and i was like oh well this is not helping uh steve martin's book is all about how glad he was to quit (laughs) comedy
0: right that was sort of the whole thing is that he he fucking quit stand-up
2: yeah and he was thrilled i've never met someone who was sad they quit stand-up uh it's a lot like alcoholics. I've never met someone who was sad they quit drinking. Like, it is, <laughs> it's a real moment that you think back and you look at, you look at the people who you used to look up to, and you see that they don't do stand up now, and they're like married, and they've got a mortgage, and they're happy, and it's like shit. I could, I, I could maybe get some of that.
3: <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. I, I um I I come from more of a music background, and I definitely got pretty jaded much of the time. But it seems like stand-up comics are even more jaded. Like I feel like there's just this this like undercurrent of misery in stand-up comedy.
2: Well, with with musicians, you've got some fellowship. Like you've got mm. you've got a band to work with. Where, like, at the end of the day, even if there's some strife with you and the band, you've got each other, and you can bond over how shitty that gig was, or. know how great that gig was but like if i do a show and well like i did a show a couple weeks ago that was fine but then we all just sort of individually went about and did our own things and there wasn't that same fellowship there wasn't that shared experience because the opener did his set i did my set and then we had a drink uh neither of us sold any merch and then we went back to the hotel
0: <laughs> yeah it's kind of every man for himself in that situation yes
2: yes and like also with music even if you're playing your own music especially if you're a cover band but even if you're playing your own music there is still like something between you and the the audience like with with myself and with a lot of comics like we're we're just Telling stories about our lives on stage. So if an audience doesn't like that, then they don't they don't like me. If an audience doesn't like the jokes that I do about my life, then they've just decided that they don't like me as a person.
1: I mean, the thing w- with stand-up and like as as a solitary pursuit, that's a big part of why this was after you left. Because uh to, to clarify for everyone listening, Dan and I uh, did many, many shows together up until he left the Bay Area. Um we produced a few shows together. Uh, we worked together on stand up a lot, and then shortly after you left, it was when I really made the switch into doing sketch instead. Um, and the th- great thing about sketch is that when the show's over, we've been working on this show for a month, at least the way that my show worked. We work on the show for a month. We're gonna all go drink and talk about how things went, and talk about how much we enjoy working together. Or occasionally, one person will go home early because they pissed everybody off. Uh, but
2: then and we all you're talk, talk about how about, about Ernie that sucks.
1: Like that. Um... uh no it was uh, I was talking about Tiramari but uh so uh, (laughs) no he's fine he's great he's he's a he's a way better writer than me now um so uh yeah but but like and so you have a little bit of that with music but with stand-up yeah it is sort of like like what you were saying about people who you the people that you look up to who did like I think that the the road guy, the st- like Stanhope is, I think, such a great example of the guy. He's just constantly touring. He's constantly getting. He's not a New York guy or an LA guy. Yeah, he lives in one of those two cities, but he's not just like he getting lives up in at Arizona, man. Thing. He lives in Bisbee, oh, really? Arizona. On, oh my god. Okay, so yeah, he's forty-five just, minutes
2: south of the the base that I used to be stationed at.
1: <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so yeah, he's then he is the ur example of like this type of comic that ever that so many comics like this is the guy he's living the art. He's not an actor. He's not a writer. He's a fucking standup. And then you actually listen to Doug Stanhope, like talk about his personal life and you're like, Oh, I, this is such a bad thing. This is like, this is such a dark place. I did a show.
2: uh, I did a one nighter. Uh, I did a one nighter at a club. And this was a show where people were paying $25 a ticket. I got paid $40 to MC. There were over 100 people in the audience. So obviously, Ugh. stand-up's Ugh. great. But yeah. the the middle act and the headliner had both been doing comedy. The middle act for almost 20 years. The headliner used to open for Joan Rivers. Whoa. Like, he just hit it big with a dry bar special. So he's been at it for 30 years and is just now really making money. And he was in Indianapolis for a one nighter on a Wednesday and hadn't seen his wife in three weeks. And like, that sounds horrific. And he's a success yeah. story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, yeah I I just, feel I'm like really it's excited to be going to school for something that I like so that I don't need, like, I enjoy doing comedy and I will continue to do comedy, but I can change my focus and it's not going to be filling that need, getting me away from a job that I hate. Like it's, be just something that I get to do when I want to do it with the people that I want to do it with as a supplement to working in a career that I enjoy.
0: Um, I, I wanted to spend some time talking to you about your time in the military and, and in talking yeah. about that time, my intention is not to bring up any PTSD. So please know that you can terminate this line of questioning at any point. Um, <laughs> no problem, man. In regards to the crossover between your military career and your career in stand-up, I know you reference the army in your comedy. Conversely, and this may be a stupid question, did you do comedy during your time in the army?
2: Uh, no, I actually started doing stand-up three weeks after I got out of the army. Oh, okay. uh, But I did... So when I was in high school, I wrote for the school paper, and I, I tried to do some just, like, stream-of-consciousness funny writing, and I was captain of the speech team. So I did enjoy performing and writing. And then while I was in Mosul, I realized it was easier to send one email blast out to everyone rather than because we had, we had internet cafes that we had to pay to go to. So rather than send 18, two sentence emails, like, Hey, I'm alive. Food sucks. Like (laughs) I could send like a newsletter out. And after the first one of those, I found out really quickly that, As much as my family said they wanted to know what it was like, they did not want to know what it was like. (laughs) They wanted, they wanted mash. Like they wanted, yeah, like a little bit of realism couched in a lot of funny and antics. So it, the first newsletter that I sent out was, you know, I'm feeling really beaten down and. I think I'm starting to get used to how often we're getting bombed because this time when the bomb started falling, I didn't even get out of bed. I was just like, Oh, well, I mean, you're going to hit me or it's not. And They did <laughs> right. not respond favorably. So the second one was, and did you know that the chow hall food is terrible?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so I wasn't doing stand-up, but I was early on learning to sort of soften the experience and do humor to make what it was more palatable.
0: That's interesting that that initially developed during your time in Iraq.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's also because at a certain point, like you've worked a terrible job before. And sure. I know Jacob, you have because we've talked about it. Like hell yeah. So at a certain point, no matter what the job is, the same coping me- mechanisms come into play. You you make jokes, you do gallows humor just to sort of get through how much a moment sucks. I, and it's, that
0: I had a that leads into a question that I had would you say that doing comedy is the best way to deal with trauma
2: <laughs> therapy is the best way to deal with trauma <laughs> um,
0: I, I, Yeah, yes of course I mean it, besides, <laughs> besides therapy
2: I just I, I, I'm going to segue for a second I have seen so many open mics where somebody gets on stage and says this is my therapy and I go up after them and say make therapy your therapy yeah. um, but Like, I, there is absolutely something to be said for redirecting the emotions through humor that the healthy expression of humor can definitely help change what the trauma is in your mind. It can make it more approachable to you. It can can knock it down into bite-sized chunks. And that did really, really help me. Like the the jokes aside, jokes aside, jokes helped. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like totally. it, it, it did help.
0: I'm curious to find out more about your experience uh, in the army and the circumstances around your honorable discharge.
2: I, uh, I was a medical discharge for a variety of reasons, but the the catalyst for it was PTSD related. Um, okay. Like it's it's weird because. There's certain things you deal with where because you, you have no idea what they are and you've just got no basis for comparison, so you don't realize that something's wrong. Right. So when I first started getting tinnitus, I didn't realize what it was because it had always been described to me as your ears ringing and that high-pitched sound in my ear didn't sound like a ringing to me. So when someone would say, oh, are your ears ringing? I would say No. But when someone explained what tinnitus was, then I was like, Oh yeah, no, I've had that for years. Yeah. And so when, when my PTSD symptoms were coming up at the beginning, I didn't really realize what it was. Uh, Like I just, I thought it was, you know, I was having some nightmares and, you know, I was having trouble sleeping and sometimes I was uncomfortable in the dark. And then like, my stress response is to try to go to sleep. So I would try to go to sleep and then I would just lay in bed and then to help me sleep, I would start drinking more. And it just, so I, I didn't realize that I was dealing with PTSD until this is going to be a weird example, but Hmm. remember sex ed from high school and they would show the pictures of Uh, venereal diseases oh yeah Uh, i would see uh, those pictures and i would think how the fuck did they let it get that bad (laughs) and that's what i did with ptsd like i it got bad before Mm -hmm. i acknowledged that something was wrong and the the sort of catalyst for me getting out was a uh, was a suicide attempt Mm -hmm. and then i went to the chaplain And then actually a joke is what got me on the right track to getting out uh, because I was meeting with a therapist and they don't do this anymore, but they used to do something called a contract to safety. Like at the time, all of the research said that if you can get someone who has expressed suicidal ideation to commit to seeing you next time they are more likely to not hurt themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the the research is out now and it doesn't actually increase chances, but for a little while they were saying that this would help because if we make a commitment, we are more likely to hold that commitment. So they asked me to contract to safety and I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, fuck it, fine, man, I guess. And that wasn't enough. so they put me into inpatient treatment for a few days, and that that got the ball rolling on uh, seeing everything that was was wrong—the PTSD, my knee injury—and uh, just enough that they said you shouldn't be in the army anymore. Uh, so it was a quicker process than usual, but it was a it was a medical discharge in late two thousand eight. Uh thanks
0: for sharing that. I yeah, Of course man. I, I'm just I cuz I don't really know that many people who have have both been in the military engaged in combat and are okay with talking about it. So this is the stuff is really interesting to me. Like what was your so you were 19, right, when you enlisted? I was
2: 19 when I joined. Um I turned 20 during basic, I turned 21 in Iraq. What,
0: uh, so what was your initial impetus
2: for enlisting? So I, it was a, a weird road that got me to join. Um, I decided to join September 11th,
1: 2001.
2: Whoa. Um, like I, I was in high school and it went down and me and a buddy, were solidly like we were we were gonna go and the catch is though I was a junior in high school so that was never going to happen um right so I touched base with the recruiters a couple of times but nothing like none of us could do anything serious and then in the fall of my senior year I met with a marine recruiter and I said I am I am ready to do this and I'm, I'm only 17, but I'm ready to do it. He had me take a practice ASVAB and uh, the army entrance exam or the military entrance exam. And I did well on that. So he was enthusiastic as hell. And he said, if you can get your parents to approve getting you in the, the, into the delayed entry program, we can send you to basic training like as soon as you turn 18, like you'll fin- you'll finish school and you'll go uh and like what i didn't realize at the time because i was a kid but looking back now like he was trying to railroad me and get a contract signed so i couldn't change my mind or bail at 17 i just i wanted to do it he wanted to get me there and my parents said no and i was i was furious yeah but what ended up happening was the marine recruiter got way too pushy and way too creepy Like he showed up where I worked, he showed up at my house, he followed me to the other school that I had a class, one class a day at, he was just, he was too much. So at 17, I had to have a conversation with this grown man and tell him he needed to back off.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was he like nervous that he was going to not get you to commit, not get you to like sign? That's that's exactly
2: what it was because recruiters, whether they'll admit it or not, they've got quotas they have to hit. And yeah. I scored well on the exams and I had gone to him. That's the weirdest thing. He was using recruitment tricks on me when I had gone to him.
0: Hmm. Uh, That sounds kind of slimy. That's like some used car salesman shit.
2: That's exactly (laughs) what it was. That's exactly what it was. Then I ended up... uh, I I talked to the army recruiter and he was much more low-key and he said, we'd love to have you, but then... My family was so against it after I was 18 that I, I backed out before I signed anything. And then about two months later, I, I was in Bloomington, Illinois, getting ready to come back. I'd been visiting uh, visiting a girl, getting ready to come back to Champaign. I was waiting on a bus because I didn't have a driver's license. And at the bus station, it couldn't have been done better if it had been staged just three dudes in army uniforms walked past me talking about how great their experience in the army was mm, and so i i shot my buddy uh, a text and this was when texts cost a dime so like i was right. like, strong in feeling about this i shot him a text and said when you pick me up at the bus station i need you to take me to the recruiting station and I signed a bunch of paperwork there. The following weekend, we went to Indianapolis to uh, the entry processing place. And I, I took the testing and I met with, and I did everything. And I didn't tell my family that I was joining until about a week before I left for basic training because I didn't want them to try to talk me out of it again. Wow. And they were They were not thrilled.
1: <laughs> That's so interesting. Like, I feel like every time you hear about someone joining the army at, a, at, a, at an age that young it's because of some like, I mean, I mean, you were really going because you were like, I want to protect America.
2: Yeah. Like I, I bought it hook, line and sinker. It was, it was, it was patriotism. And also, I mean, I also was looking for some discipline and looking for some guidance. Like I was, I was working a job that I liked and I was good at, but it had no real future. I was a sales manager at a men's clothing store. And on the side, I was selling drugs and Mm -hmm. like just there was no future for the life I was living. And I saw this brighter future and a way to do something that I really felt strongly mattered. So this
0: was this was like during the George W. Bush era. Oh, yeah. You were in the army. Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, Yeah,
2: I shipped to basic training in February of 2005.
0: Where was that the basic training?
2: Basic training was Fort Benning, Georgia. I was there from February to May. So we got all four seasons. Yeah. Because Georgia's wild. And then how
0: long was it before you were stationed in Iraq?
2: So with the Army, you do basic training and then you go to AIT, that is where you're trained for the job that you signed up for. Uh, so I went from basic training to Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Um, and I left- home Fort of, Huachuca. Uh, The home that? of that Stanhope. Yes, uh, yeah. like 45 <laughs> minutes north. It's at Sierra Vista. You drive through some mountains to get down to Bisbee. It's this little hippie town right on the border in the mountains of Arizona. It's really cute. I did New Year's Eve there once. All right. Uh, okay. But I was, I was in Arizona until October. And then I was in Iraq right after Thanksgiving. And how long were you there? Uh, I was in Iraq for a little over a year between Mosul and Baghdad. Uh, because we were supposed to go home Um, We we were in Mosul, and then some of us had already gone home. I was three days out from leaving Mosul to go back. I was stationed in Alaska. uh, And then we got orders that our unit, instead of going home, was going to go down to Baghdad to support another unit. We, uh, We were in Baghdad for about five months, and it was a very different kind of deployment experience, but it was still just another deployment. Uh. (laughs) What what did you do with your time there? That's something I like, I, I tried to explain to a crowd this past weekend and they, I don't know if they just couldn't fathom it or if they didn't believe me, but when you're not actively working in the army, it's just a job. Yeah. So depending on where you are when you're deployed, there'll be different resources available, depending on where, like, what type of deployment you're on, because uh, I know, I, I was in Mosul and Baghdad, so I did no Afghanistan time, and I know that some of the places there were different, and I know some of the places in Iraq were different, because, like, if you were in Tikrit or in Talafar, it was much more stripped down, but where i was at in baghdad was right off of the green zone like the embassy was where i was at and so when i wasn't actively working uh one of saddam's palaces had been converted into a morale welfare and recreation area so you could go watch football they had xboxes set up like it was it was a hangout spot there were uh some internet cafes there was a phone center so you could call home it it wasn't like it wasn't like being home but when you weren't working you weren't working <laughs> you could yeah. you could do a lot of stuff you could go to the gym you could hang out you could sleep whatever you wanted to do
0: so i'm curious to know what are some of the things you did while you were working
2: oh uh well i was uh they they changed the name right before i joined to a human intelligence collector um i was an interrogator uh, who did yeah, you I lived a lot of lives uh, detainees um i worked in a couple of different detention facilities uh in mosul between mosul and baghdad uh so detainees that were rounded up either through targeted raids or because just intelligence information suggested somebody from an area or sometimes curfew violations, whatever whatever would lead to someone being arrested, they would be taken to a military facility first. And from that military facility, they would either be sent to a further military facility for uh, real intelligence collection. Like if we caught somebody who was on a watch list or something, or they would be sent to just the local police. So if somebody was arrested for taking pot shots at an army convoy and we arrested them and we spent a few days talking to them and it turned out that they were not a member of a suspected terrorist cell. They were just mad that we were there as an occupying nation. They were
0: just dudes with guns who were pissed off that you guys were in their right. home. Yeah.
2: Then we would send them to the local police for civil stuff. But if we conducted a targeted raid because we had intelligence that somebody was a bomb maker and then we arrest this suspected bomb maker... Then after we do the initial interrogation, then we would send him to another facility where they would have him for longer term to collect more detailed intelligence. We would do, like one of the things I learned in the army was the difference between tactical and strategic. Tactical is very boots on the ground in the moment and strategic is the bigger umbrella. And we were looking for tactical information that would save lives in the moment and then other facilities handled the strategic win the war hearts and minds kind of thing.
0: Right. I'm just imagining like you're just in a room one-on-one with a guy and you're going like, why'd you do that? Like, what,
1: what was that all about? <laughs> yeah, were you a good cop <laughs> or bad cop? Yes.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, like, a huge part of interrogation is building rapport. Like, every interrogation has a good cop. Like, if, ideally, no one's ever a bad cop, but that doesn't always work. But they're always, like, the carrot and stick analogy works really well because there always has to be a carrot. There always has to be a reason for this person to cooperate. And if you're being the bad cop, you're not the guy giving them a reason to cooperate. You're, you're giving them you're giving them the stick. You're not literally. No, no, that was a bad way to phrase it. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean that
0: honestly, I was having this internal, like, so did you fucking torture him? Like, no. how hardcore did it get? It was, it was the
1: Bush administration. <laughs> I saw, look, I saw vice. I know what was going on. Did you see Vice or did you see Zero Dark Thirty? Um, <laughs> I, I, I only watched the movies Adam McKay Direct. I'm scared of everything else. <laughs> I watched no, a Michael Moore film and I'm woke as fuck
2: now. <laughs> <laughs> like, at the end of the day, I, I can unequivocally say that I never tortured anybody. Never did it. Uh, I, I I feel like even though Jacob knew that, he's also still a little bit relieved. Like, oh shit, thank God. I've been friends with this guy for 10 years.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did not think that you tortured people, but I did think that you would stand near them holding a, a, a devices that may have done that for you. <laughs> I didn't think that you did it. I never thought that you did it.
2: What's interesting, and I, I complained about this at one point, because... Most of the things that come out about detainee abuse were not interrogators, but then interrogators are the ones that get the constraints placed upon them. Like in Abu Ghraib, it was not interrogators abusing the prisoners, making them get naked and getting pyramids. That was prison guards. And that is absolutely reprehensible. I completely believe that it was terrible, but it wasn't interrogators doing that. But somehow that happening by that treatment by prison guards turned into more oversight on interrogators. And, the and word, I don't think that oversight was bad, but it was still just strange that well,
0: the, the word interrogator Im- implies a certain level of like, like yeah. tough guy, you know, fucking I'm going to torture you vibe, which isn't true.
2: But the word has
0: that association.
2: There's definitely a a connotation with the word. And that's why they changed it to human intelligence collector. Like they
1: human intelligence collector. Okay, that still sounds like someone who does decapitations or something.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But Carlin did a bit years ago about how the more words you use to say something, the more sanitized it is because he talked about post-traumatic stress. Uh, the fact that it used to get to be called shell shock. And that was a very visceral thing. And then you added more words to it to make it more palatable, even though it means the exact same thing. And that's what the army did with human intelligence collector.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It was, yeah, it was, it was like shell shock, uh, uh, battle fatigue
1: and post-traumatic stress disorder. Battle fatigue. That's like offensive. He's just tired. Let him take a nap. He'll be fine. Jesus. Well, they did
2: that to me. I I had I had a an issue while I was over there. Uh, I found out that a friend had been killed in Afghanistan. And I really just I had a rough, really rough moment. And rather than send me in Iraq to a place called mental health, it was called combat stress. Mm. and like that's just such a an innocuous way of describing hey is the war getting you down buddy (laughs) yeah it kind of is it kind I got combat stress
0: the term combat stress sounds it's it's the same as like battle fatigue it's like it's the kind of shit that like an old-fashioned sexist man would say to a woman like oh you're getting hysterical that kind
1: of shit. <laughs> oh, you're, you're not Combat wrong. Stre- Combat stress to me sounds like a, a brand of hot yoga class.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel like it's it's like sweatpants but like make them tactical. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where the, they're, all the stuff they're billing towards horrifically toxic men to try to get a dollar out of them so like liquid death water and all that
1: crap. Oh, hey. that tastes like garbage. That yeah, they no, were it's responsive. not good. They were responsible for Sketchfest one year. It's water that makes you thirsty. Straight to hell. Straight well, up. Not, Straight to hell. It, what are you talking about? It's water. I've had that. She yeah, had the liquid death, right? Liquid death. It's
2: water, water but like... it's in an aluminum can. So it's water that tastes like metal.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess. But, it, it, you know, it's not plastic. And like, it's, it's funny, it's, it's supposed to be ironic, isn't it? Is, is it really supposed to like manipulate, you know, metalheads or whoever into like drinking water?
1: I, don't I do think know. a lot of it is branding.
2: Yeah, like, it's, it's the same as, I, I remember I was on leave once and my sister had ordered a drink called a cowgirl quencher and it was delicious. It was bright <laughs> pink, it was in this frilly glass. And I took a sip and I said, that's amazing. But God damn it, I'm a man. So I made them put it in a pint glass. <laughs> and that's how I feel about liquid death water. Whether that was their intent or not, they are absolutely benefiting from dudes who are like, yeah, I need to hydrate, but I don't want to seem like a queer. Like, that's, that's what they're getting. Whether that's what they're aiming for or not, they are getting That's what at. they're getting.
1: Okay. Yeah, fair. Like how, like how Voss was trying to make water, like, trendy. Like, oh, it comes in this like reusable plastic thing with a big clunky lid. It's fashion. Yes. It's water. It's everywhere.
2: I mean, not everywhere. You live in California.
1: Um, That's true. (laughs) We don't have it. Uh, It's funny because there's a drought. Yeah. (laughs) It's never not drought. Never not. Arizona was on my short
2: list for when I finished school. And then I realized that I'd be thirsty all the time. Uh, Yeah. And maybe on fire. Is that nice, better nice than positive moment to, to reach a segue? Like let's let's talk about wildfires <laughs> and drought.
0: <laughs> yeah, Jesus. No, great. Uh, that's perfect. So, uh, not on the subject of natural disasters. <laughs> let's shift back to your comedy. I I've, I've a couple <laughs> questions for you. One being, do you derive any pleasure from putting hecklers in their place?
2: I used to. Um but like I on, on the early show Saturday, there was a guy who was talking and he was having a good time. He was not heckling. He was just enjoying himself a little bit too loudly. Yeah. And after the third time that he said something and I had to respond, I was like, okay, great. So we're, we're almost at that point. Uh, what point? We're almost at the point where you're going to become an annoyance. And what I want the crowd to do is I want you guys to do something we learned about in the army. It's called police your own. So
3: <laughs>
2: you guys all paid to be here. So as soon as anyone, not just him, but in this moment, absolutely him. As soon as anyone becomes a distraction, you guys get to be the ones to tell them to shut the fuck up. And they all had a good time and it stopped further disruption. I. It can be fun to shut down somebody, but... Most of the people I've seen who really, really enjoy shutting down hecklers aren't good comics. Yeah, because like, if you have jokes, your jokes will be enough to make the audience laugh. If you're, at, like, and it, it bums me out because like, Steve Hofstetter has built his fame at this point on shutting down I was going to mention this.
0: Yeah, he's he's the he's the heckler guy. I don't even know any of his yeah. fucking bits. It's but just all the him. Is
2: he was a good comic. He was a he's a he's a funny comic. He's a talented dude. And then now he's done enough heckler shutdowns that people come to his show to heckle. And that is awful. Like sucks. terrible. I, I work, I don't want to say hard, but I, I work to write my material. I work to develop it and put together a narrative that. I think the crowd will find interesting and I will find satisfying to tell. If I am up here for seven minutes, 10 minutes, 45 minutes, I've built the what I want to say. And if I have to spend four minutes, no matter how funny it may be shutting somebody down, that's four minutes away from what I planned to talk about. And I get annoyed by comics who are like, oh, well, this is my art form, but I am trying to tell a story and now part of that story either has to get left out or I have to piss off the booker by running long. And so it can be fun and it can be satisfying, but I do think that hecklers as a whole cheapen comedy. They're not, they're not making it better. And I know that they think that they are, but they're not making it better as an audience member. I get, perhaps
0: overly sensitive about people being disruptive. And like, I'm the same way in like comedy shows, improv shows, fucking go into the movies. There's always someone who's gotta say the thing. And I'm like, nope, whatever you think you need to say, you it doesn't need to be said at all. But then I don't wanna tell them to shut the fuck up because that causes more of a disruption. And so you're sort of just like backed in the corner just like,
1: damned if you do, damned if you don't. I somewhat recently, this is a couple years ago, I went to see this, the the, the second Jumanji movie with the rock in it, um, and there was these people that's, that's in, directly in front of us. Yeah. Uh, hey, the first one was a good ass time. Uh, I don't know. And sometimes you're just a little bit stoned and it's a Thursday and you're like, fuck it. Um, I miss going to the movies. Anyway, uh, yeah, and there was this these kids in front of us who were talking the entire time and my buddy told them to shut up and I was like, hey man, be cool. And then they... Um, talked a lot more during quiet parts of the like it's one thing if you're talking during an action scene but if you're talking during like a conversation we're advancing the plot scene so i was telling them to shut the fuck up but i had to do it like and then they turned to me and said you shut up and i was like i did what (laughs) uh see that's
2: always it it annoys me like because i i was at a show uh a few months or like a month and a half ago or something and it was just but you know how sometimes comedy is great fun and it just happens and like it's everything's sparking and it's beautiful and it's just a wonderful experience. And this, this was like a Tuesday at the office. Like it was, <laughs> it was the opposite of all of that beautiful that I just described. And we're going, I'm, going through the paces. Yes. I'm, I'm doing my set and these two people who both of them were very attractive. And that has, to, like, they, they had to just be used to being the most attractive people in this small town. Uh, and they're just sitting there talking to each other loudly enough that you can hear them over the microphone. And like, I, I said to them, why would you pay to be here to talk to each other? Like, at, at the end of the day, like they paid $15 a ticket to come and talk to each other and fuck up everybody else's night. I think and a lot that, of people don't, I think, I don't
0: understand the dynamics. They're just like, "Hey, let's go out, you know, for cocktails or whatever." Like they think that this is a thing where they can socialize with their friends. they like, "Oh, stand-up comedy, this is the thing we can do together." But that's not, you know. And and to be fair, with stand-up comedy, especially compared to music, there's a lot more expected of the audience. Like yeah. if, I, if I'm playing in a band and we end the song and two people clap and you know, one guy goes, you suck, then f- we're just gonna keep fucking playing. We're louder than you, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. but, but like the standup comedy uh, audience is, it's a really delicate art form. It's probably one of the most delicate performance arts there
1: is. We're just, talking about
2: tiramari again. I get it. Um... <laughs>
1: I, I actually had another shitty thing in the in the chamber to say about tiramari. <laughs> I thought tiramari you were, tiramari were friends. What's what's going on? No, no, no. It's so I, I, I had I had a heckler story that involved him in one regard what I was going to say was when I did my sketch show. Um, one of the other comics I don't want to say his name, so I'll just make a name up. Let's call him tiramari. Uh, had a friend, <laughs> had a friend that he invited to show and this friend bought his girlfriend. And based off how his girlfriend acted, it wasn't just like she'd never seen a comedy show before. I don't think she'd ever been been around, seen any form of performance. Like, okay, I remember as a kid, one time I saw Inherit the Wind, which is a a play about someone defending the right to teach uh, evolution in schools. And I remember being so frustrated at the guy who was saying evolution isn't real that I wanted to yell something and had to go like, no, it's a show. I need to shut the fuck up. I'm a child. But this person had never had any form of that experience. (laughs) <laughs> and so she was, she acted. So in our sketch show, we had mostly sketches, but also like two or two or standups would perform. She would be talking to the standups as if they were only speaking to her. She would be talking to into the sketches as if to say, this is a real thing that's happening and they need my help. It was insane. But I learned how to shut down a heckler because our final sketch of the night involved me being just in my underwear. And so I came out. <laughs> Just wearing my boxer shorts and my Timberlands, and she hid her face behind her boyfriend because she couldn't look at me, and the sketch went perfectly. <laughs> so that's the trick: you have to just be in your underwear, and the hecklers will be like, "I can't, I don't want to deal with this."
2: Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: You just need to raise the stakes, like yeah. you know, come out naked if you have to.
2: <laughs> I've I've done that. Like my my move, you come is, out naked, I've always stage? been. <laughs> My, my move has always been to enlist the crowd like yeah to make that person the enemy like it'll be something along the lines of oh man how many of you guys paid to see a comedy show and how many of you paid to see just a drunk idiot shout stuff at the stage and then it'll be like oh so by, by a show of hands how many people here have a purple heart I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that should be talking like just I will I will try to make that person the enemy for everyone because God especially if it's a woman it is really easy to suddenly be the bully like no matter how bad they've been it is mm -hmm. really easy to suddenly be the bully from the stage so if I make the crowd on my side it helps
0: Yeah, and then you have a common enemy. Yes. Which brings people together. And that's
2: how you save the planet on the 4th of July.
1: (laughs) I I just want to say a little bit more about Hecklers. I don't know if either of you have seen that video that has gone viral this week of a woman who got on stage during a show, during a comedy show, to tell the comedian that his material was offensive.
2: I, I saw people sharing it on Twitter but I did not watch it because I didn't need to see another entitled person
1: yeah it was it was honestly otherworldly like I mean we've had cell phone cameras for a long time and the fact that this is a a video like and and people have always yelled out shit from the audience saying that your material is offensive and like I'm not even I don't even know what the guy's material was I can't imagine it would be that bad but the thing is even if it is that bad you're allowed to leave but the the idea that someone could object so strongly that they're like, I have to get up and do something. Everyone will be on my side. And I think that's really what the heckler thinks. I think the heckler, every heckler thinks, this is what the crowd would agree needs to happen right now.
2: I think they just, they all watch Boondock Saints before, um, and they catch that opening speech about how the true evil is when a good person does nothing. And they're like, this is my moment to kill Russians at Copley Plaza with words because I am the only person in this room offended by this one person's joke. And I got to say something about it. Hey Mike, have you seen Boondock Sites?
0: I'm trying to remember. I don't think I've ever seen it. I
2: haven't seen
1: it either. I hope that some of our listeners appreciated that. Oh Damn. no. <laughs> Here's the thing, the first movie
2: is excellent. And the second movie happened um, yeah, and now they're making uh, a third one. Um, the first movie oh my God. has Willem Dafoe, and it is, it's is—it's a phenomenal film that is absolutely like in the annals with Die Hard as far as these, oh, I'm a good guy with a gun and I'll save the day, but it's very entertaining.
0: Um, in, in wrapping up here, since we're talking about movies, um, Space Jam 2, Really? Really? Is this what we need? Is this what our society needs right now?
2: The original Space Jam was a soulless cash grab. But But, it was fun. It had heart for its time. It did a fairly seamless live action and animated character blend it acknowledged what it was doing in a way that was a little bit tongue in cheek and kind of fun, like when Bill Murray said he was in the movie because he knew the
1: producer. I mean the the uh, Wayne Knight's line where he rattles off like the names of five different yes. corporations is is honestly a perfect piece of comedy.
2: It was reminiscent of Wayne's World, like when they yeah. do their product placement scene. Yeah, and then Space Jam Two, like it just it was purely soulless and i have had people try to tell me well it's for kids it's not for kids there is a cameo from the droogs from clockwork orange and there's a moment where you see the maltese falcon playing it is not a movie for children that's no it is for nostalgia ad it is an ad for hbo max
0: that entire (laughs)
2: movie is an ad for all of the properties that warner brothers owns and it just the nothing memorable on the soundtrack they the original space Jam introduced lola bunny like they introduced a strong female character with agency of her own who actually we get to see bugs get hurt saving her instead of hurting a woman to motivate a male character the original space jam is a commercial but it was a commercial that had moments that elevated it and it was fun. And it had a soundtrack that went six times platinum
0: by R. Kelly.
2: He was yes, but <laughs> that wasn't. I'm what not there saying, was. yeah, I'm not, Steel I'm not trying. Also to... covered Fly Like an Eagle. Barry White and Chris Rock did a basketball jones that was just delightfully fun. There's a song with Coolio Buster Rhymes be real and ll cool j where they rap as the monsters. like it is it was deeply fun and satisfying it was not a good movie i love that movie but that doesn't mean it was good but i guess the soundtrack is pretty
0: cool i i is undersold the soundtrack it only (laughs) it only features r kelly just like a a little a little sprinkle a little tinkling if you will of uh (laughs) Kelly.
3: (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, on that note, Dan, thanks so much uh, for being part of this with us. Uh, it was that's great talking to you. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for the laughs. I, I wasn't saying that facetiously. I Thank you. Um, thank you. I, I don't know if, if you like hearing that or if that that's just fluff that civilians say to try to feel better.
2: It's so I... I recently decided that for me, thank you for your service is like Christmas music. (laughs) Like if I'm not a fan, it makes me a little uncomfortable, but if that's what someone feels, then I don't want to try to take that away. There are some people who say it like, I don't believe you are one of the people like this, but there are some people that say it as a way to absolve themselves of their shitty vote.
3: Mm. And
2: they feel like they're doing something by doing a knee-jerk bare minimum. I don't think that's what you're doing. So like no. when people in Indiana clap when I say I was in, this, in the military, it's like, oh, you guys are probably the worst. But like, there, there are a wide spectrum of reasons people will say thank you, so I don't fight it anymore like it's it's if someone seeks it out i think they're probably a bad person um yeah but i don't i don't try to stop people from saying it it's just not something that i will ever i'll never be sorry if someone doesn't fair enough okay but what's your
1: what's your stance on those hats that say thank a veteran
2: someone that wants to advertise how great that virtue signaling is such a <laughs> triggering term yeah but they never call it virtue signaling when they're being conservative and doing it like look how great a patriot i am because i'm telling you to make sure you don't forget to think. right that's only a, a
0: snowflake thing the virtue yes. signaling yeah <laughs> yeah before we go too far down that rabbit hole i will uh i i will put an end to this uh to this talk thank you dan really appreciate it <laughs> Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks,
1: man. Uh, so that was our interview with Dan West. We hope you enjoyed it. I would like to offer a slight retraction on something that I said earlier in the episode where I said that liquid death was bad because it's water that makes you thirsty. I had it mixed up with a different brand of bottled water. I had liquid death over the weekend, and it's fine. It's not the thing that I thought that had sodium in it. Liquid death is something else. Liquid death is just water in a can. It's fine. It's fine. What, it's fine. what is the thing with sodium in it? I don't remember. I Because re- I, it was a sponsor. If, if this helps, it was a sponsor for the San Francisco Sketch Fest, a comedy festival, about five years ago. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it wasn't liquid death. It is some water that's like, oh, no, it's good for you because it has sodium in it and like more hydrates you, but it just makes you thirsty. Um, It's like the water in the film, The Tuxedo, starring Jackie Chan and Jennifer Love Hewitt. Don't see it if you haven't seen it. It's not good. It's almost as bad as water with sodium in it. Very nice. Yeah. Also
0: referencing the interview we just did. So I at one point made an incredibly tasteful and creative R. Kelly joke. uh, Right. (laughs) If we are sticking on the subject of people getting peed on, I, I got something I was thinking about. So have you heard of this band Brass Against? Yeah, and, yeah I saw the video. The whole, the whole controversy? Right. Yeah. So for those that don't know, Br- Brass Against is a, a heavy metal cover band that includes brass instruments. They're great. And oh, uh, and, re- cool. and recently, um, the the lead singer of the band came under fire. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around. So she peed on a guy's face on stage while performing. So that's what happened. Um, And she's getting called disgusting and vile and like the media is just piling onto her and she like she had to issue an apology. And I'm like I don't think anybody deserves apology from her. Like I don't I don't think she is obligated to apologize to anybody. She already did. Like if you think about it like she said into the microphone like I really have to pee. Let's make a fucking show out of this. Like who, who wants to come up on stage to get peed on? She essentially stated what she was going to do. And, of course, one really excited guy in the crowd was like,
3: yes, 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 yes.
0: Yeah. So they bring him on stage. He lies down. She takes a substantial piss all over his face. He's loving it. I mean, she had to pee. <laughs> she had to pee. And, like, I understand. But you got to go. <laughs> they're not shock rockers, right? Like, you'd maybe expect right. that at a Marilyn Manson show or or something like or that. G.G. Like, Allen or some shit. Right, and if society can survive GG fucking Atwin, they can survive. Right. The, this got blown way out of proportion. It's as if we're like in more like the bar has been set so low. Really, this? Like, mm-hmm. like a guy consensually getting his face peed on at a rock concert.
1: This, right. this both is the of them, you want to die on? Both of them knew what they were getting into. No one was surprised. Uh, um, a, a fairly a, a not insignificant number of people are into pee just in you know in a in some fashion it's not a small percentage i don't know the numbers but you know if i mean how many people is she performing for a few thousand someone in there is going to be like oh yes this is exactly what i've always wanted yeah yeah so,
0: I, and apparently according to the band she cleaned it up after
1: the show so she <laughs> she legitimately has nobody to apologize to yeah, not the roadie. The, there was a, you know there was a roadie backs being like, "Ah, oh, god damn it. I gotta take care of this now. Yeah. I gotta lose oh, the then I gotta weapon.
0: Um, but you know, me. they got banned from okay, that venue and like they're taking all this shit from the media and from you know and from prudish fans. And I think
1: it is ridiculous. I I mean, I do understand the like "Quote unquote outrage" on the stance that it was like, uh, um, like considered us if you consider it to be like a sex act performed on stage, but like, come on, people, it's 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 brass against that th- we have an idea of who they are, uh, and and like if you didn't, you know, man, if you don't want to see, don't look. That's what I've always, that's what I said in the middle school locker room, and that's what I'm saying right now. There's so <laughs> many horrible things you could look at, but if you look at them, sight is the only sense that we can opt out of, right? I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, so just opt out. You got eyelids. You could just be like, I don't want to see that. <laughs> yeah, so and, yeah, I, I, mean, and I, watched, I watched the video, so you don't have to. But it's... Uh... I, I mean, I, I watched it, and just to make sure that I knew everything that was going on, I watched it 14 times, because I needed to make <laughs> sure that I had every detail. <laughs> I mean, she, she really had to go. Like, the- Oh, she and did I'll- have to go. Also,
0: her, her, her name is, uh, is Sophia Urista. It's probably pronounced Urista, but regardless, that sounds like somebody who sells pee instead of coffee. Yeah, that fucking rules. Um, <laughs> but whatever. The, they get the last laugh because they're fucking opening for Tool on their upcoming tour. So, like. Oh, amazing. She probably shouldn't <laughs> pee on anybody else, but you know what?
1: If she does, she will have my full support. Right. Yeah and you know hey speaking as a music fan speaking as someone who attends concerts i if the musician says hey i have to pee i'll be right back or hey i have to pee but i don't want to stop the show let's keep the show rolling i'm in a great mood show uh thank you so much for listening to hella interesting people uh be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast also if you like dan west and you like me we Both just appeared on an episode of Nerd Rage, The Great Debates, which is another great podcast um, that is actually ending its run. It's been on for four years and they're they're finishing it. A number of people are leaving the show. So so Nerd Rage is coming to a close. Um, But there will be an episode It might. it it will be up after this episode because there's um, but it's essentially a debate uh, between who's better, Mario or Garfield. Um, I'm on Team Garfield and Dan is on Team Mario. So if you want to know how that debate goes, uh, check out Nerd Rage, The Great Debates. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of hella interesting people. Uh, Please, if you have the opportunity, give us a rating or review or a subscription wherever you get your podcasts, leave reviews on Apple podcasts. They, every rating and review helps us grow and expand and reach a new audience. And we really appreciate that. And we thank you so much once again for listening to the show. Please stay tuned for our next episode, which will be an interview with a different person. I'm Jacob Rubin. And I'm Mike Ruby. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.
0: Bye.